0: Welcome to episode 9 of my podcast. This episode is the second in a series of episodes related to the first volume of Antonicene Fathers, first printed in 1885. You can get a free digital copy of this volume from the website of the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. In this episode I will be dealing with the Epistle to Dionysus. I will read passages from the translation of the letter and offer some comments here and there. The Epistle to Dionysus is thought to have been an early work of Christian apologetics written in the 2nd or 3rd century. The name of the author is not mentioned in the letter. It seems to have been written to an interested Gentile, for we can read in the first paragraph of the translated letter. Since I see the most excellent Dionysus exceedingly desirous to learn the mode of worshipping God prevalent among the Christians and inquiring very carefully and earnestly concerning them what God they trust in and what form of religion they observe so as all to look down upon the world itself and despise death while they neither esteem those to be gods that are reckoned such by the Greek nor hold to the superstition of the Jews and what is the affection which they cherish among themselves and why, in fine, this new kind of practice of piety has only now entered into the world and not long ago. I cordially welcome this thy desire, and I implore God, who enables us both to speak and hear, to grant me so to speak, that, above all, I may hear you have been edified, and to you so to hear, that I who speak may have no cause to regret for having done so. After the opening paragraph, there is a section in which the author criticizes a number of aspects of Greco-Roman religion, which I would like to read some parts of. Come then, after you have freed yourself from all prejudices possessing your mind, And lay aside what you have been accustomed to, as something apt to deceive you, and being made, as from the beginning, a new man, inasmuch as according to your own confession, you are to be the hearer of a new system of doctrine. Come and contemplate, not with your eyes only, but with your understanding, the substance and form of those ye declared and deemed to be gods and then skipping a section, are not all these of corruptible matter? Are they not fabricated by means of iron and fire? Did not the sculptor fashion one of them, the brazier a second, the silversmith a third, and the potter a fourth? Was not every one of them, before they were formed by the arts of these workmen into the shape of these gods, each in its own way subject to change? Would not those things which are now vessels formed of the same materials become like to such if they met the same artificers? Might not these which are now worshipped by you again be made by men vessels similar to others? Are they not all deaf? Are they not blind? Are they not without life? Are they not destitute of feeling? Are they not incapable of motion? Are they not all corruptible? These things ye call gods, these things ye serve, these ye worship, and ye become altogether like them. For this reason ye hate the Christians, because they do not deem these to be gods, but do not ye yourselves, who now think and suppose such to be gods, much more cast contempt upon them than they the Christians do? Do ye not much more mock and insult them, when ye worship those that are made of stone and earthenware, without appointing any persons to guard after them? But those made of silver and gold ye shut up at night, and appoint watchers to look after them by day, lest they be stolen. And by those gifts which ye mean to present them, do ye not, if ye are possessed of sense, rather punish than honor them? But if on the other hand they are destitute of sense, ye convict them of this fact, while ye worship them with blood and the smoke of sacrifices. This passage reminds me of Isaiah. A similar line of criticism is found there, for example in Isaiah 44 and 46. Now there is a question of whether or not the author attacked a straw man. Did the Greeks and Romans really believe their idols were their gods? Arguably not, at least not in most cases. That being said, there can certainly be legitimate concern about and criticism of their idols and how Greeks and Romans treated them. In the next two paragraphs of the letter the Jews are criticized and arguably not always rightly. But after that come two paragraphs in which the lifestyle of the Christians is described. In the second, the writer memorably suggested that the way the Christians are in the world is like the way the soul is in the body. But I would like to read the first paragraph to you. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor by language, nor the custom which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves to be advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them, has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet made rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Now this may be a somewhat idealized description, but it nevertheless sheds light on early Christian living. In the next paragraphs there are relevant sections when it comes to the question of whether or not the pre-Nicene Christians were Trinitarians. I'll read some of the passages. For, as I said, this was now merely earthly invention which was delivered to them, Nor is it a mere human system of opinion, which they judge it right to preserve so carefully, nor has a dispensation of mere human mysteries been committed to them. But truly God himself, who is almighty, the creator of all things, and invisible, has sent from heaven and placed among men him who is the truth and the holy and incomprehensible word, and has firmly established him in their hearts. He did not, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant, or angel, or ruler, or any one of those who bear sway over earthly things, or one of those to whom the government of things in the heavens has been entrusted. But the very Creator and Fashioner of all things by whom he made the heavens, by whom he enclosed the sea within its proper bounds, whose ordinances all the stars faithfully observe, from whom the sun has received the measure of his daily course to be observed, whom the moon obeys, being commanded to shine in the night, and whom the stars also obey, following the moon in her course, by whom all things have been arranged and placed within their proper limits, and to whom all are subject, the heavens and the things therein, the earth and the things that are therein, the sea and the things that are therein, fire, air, and the abyss, the things which are in the heights, the things which are in the depths, the things which lie between. And then skipping a section. As a king sends his son, who is also a king, so, so he sent him, as God he sent him, as to man he sent him, as a savior he sent them, and as seeking to persuade, not to compel us, for violence has no place in the character of God, as calling us he sent him, not as eventually pursuing us, as loving us he sent him, not as judging us, for he will yet send him to judge us, and who shall endure his appearing? And then the next passage For God, the Lord and fashioner of all things, who made all things and assigned them their several positions, proved himself not merely a friend of mankind, but also long suffering in his dealings with them. Yet yeah, he was always of such a character, and still is, and ever will be, kind and good, and free from wrath, and true, and the only one who is absolutely good. And he formed in his mind a great and unspeakable conception which he communicated to his Son alone. And then the next passage. He gave his own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for transgressors, the Blameless One for the wicked, the Righteous One for the unrighteous, the Incorruptible One for the corruptible, the Immortal One for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? And then the last passage. For God has loved mankind, on whose account he made the world, to whom he rendered subject all the things that are in it, to whom he gave reason and understanding, to whom alone he imparted the privilege of looking upwards to himself, whom he formed after his own image, to whom he sent his only begotten Son, to whom he promised the kingdom in heaven, and will give it to those who have loved him. It's pretty clear that God is distinct from the word slash the Son in these passages, even though there's clearly a very high view of the word slash the Son. The sending of the Word slash the Son as God might seem to indicate something different, but this should perhaps be interpreted along the lines of Exodus 4, verse 16. The last two paragraphs, or chapters, 11 and 12, of the letter are thought to be a fragment of a homily, perhaps by a different author. I will end with a reading from chapter 11. This is he who, being from everlasting, is today called the Son, through whom the church is enriched, and grace, widely spread, increases in the saints, furnishing understanding, revealing mysteries, announcing times, rejoicing over the faithful, giving to those that seek, by whom the limits of faith are not broken through, nor the boundaries set by the fathers passed over. The fear of the law is chanted, and the grace of the prophets is known, and the faith of the gospels is established, and the tradition of the apostles is preserved, and the grace of the church exalts. Which grace, if you grieve not, you shall know those things which the word teaches, by whom he wills, and when he pleases." Thank you for listening to this short episode. You can find the episode text on my website, markshaw.nl. Feel free to contact me via the website if you have comments about this episode. Thank you for listening.